0: Then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the Israelites. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and performed the signs in the sight of the people. The people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had given heed to the Israelites and that he had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, so that they may celebrate a festival to me in the wilderness." Do you ever have a day when it feels like you are just alone in a struggle? Rarely does that actually happen for a day. It's usually a season, maybe even months at a time. Like you were the only one who knew what your problem felt like. Whatever problem it may be. Uh, maybe it's grief. Maybe it's addiction. Maybe it's an estranged relationship. I fully get it. Every situation every struggle is unique no no one situation ever fits into a nice neat box just because every character involved in our lives and in the stories of our lives brings a unique backstory into the situation also i get that there are many who hear who will hear today's backstory to the story that i'm reading today and they will get it on a level on a level that i never will i mean Let's be honest, I'm a white male who grew up with two parents in the Midwest of the United States. When the Bible writes a love letter, essentially, between God and an oppressed and enslaved people, I recognize that I am woefully out of my league, as far as experience goes. But the good thing is, I don't have to change my demographic to glean from these words. I want you to hear them with the weight that they contain, both for the Israelites who are Currently, as the situation is going on, are slaves and Pharaoh who of Egypt, who is the slave trader or the slave master, if you will. This comes out of Exodus 6, verses 1 through 8. It goes like this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. Indeed, by a mighty hand he will let them go. By a mighty hand he will drive them out of his land. God also spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they resided as aliens. I have also heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are holding as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the Israelites, I am the Lord, I will free you from the burdens of the Egyptians and deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God who has freed you from the burden of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord." Well, there's certainly a lot of statements in that passage almost like a fighter smack-talking his opponent before getting in the ring for a match. And he sprinkles in some reminders that while the ideas uh, written in context gives even a white male something to hang on to, he says, I am the Lord. Conservatively, he says it four times in eight verses. You could probably bump it up a few more times depending on how you want to count that phrase. When something is repeated that much, And that kind of of rate, it means pay attention to two things. First off, a little bit of a a Bible reading tip. It's Lord, all uppercase, rather than Lord, capital L, lowercase O-R-D, which you will often see sometimes in the Gospels, where it's written like that as a way of simply saying sir. Lord is another word for sir when it comes to how it's put together in the New Testament. It's a sign of respect. It's a sign of deference, but it's not a sign of reverence. Now, when you read Lord, which usually if you're reading a print Bible, it's uh, Lord all uppercase, but it's all like those small uppercase or small cap letters. That is a name that demands reverence. It's not a title, it's a name. It's tied to the idea of Lord of Lords or King of Kings, the ultimate of them. Likewise, we often have a danger when we're reading something like this, and we use the word, or really when we're reading just about any part of Christian text, and we use the word God, because God today can be especially nebulous, or it can come across, or become especially nebulous. We say God, and it lets people think, I believe God is like this, or I believe God is like that, and it could be totally off base from what, um, what the Christian Bible says God is like, And this passage doesn't allow for that. We can have a believer and a non-believer talking about God, and they, because they're talking about totally different understandings of God, they completely end up missing each other. And the passage doesn't allow for that to happen. Because in verse 3, we get some specificity. We have the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Now, I say this for the benefit of non-Christians, so that whatever you may think of the conclusions that I draw from this, you know, last week we were talking about if-then statements and if this is the Lord talking, the Lord of Lord, King of Kings, all that mightiness uh, or mightiest title that we give, then all of this, whatever you may think of where I go with that, at least, then we're starting from the same place and with a, a common given understanding of how we're going to define God or how we're going to define Lord. And I give this, say this for the benefit of Christians as well, so that if you talk to a non-Christian, you remember that we have to be specific. So oftentimes um, when we are talking about the New Testament, it makes a lot more sense to, if possible, to use Jesus rather than God, because God can be that sort of nebulous idea. Jesus is a historical figure that we will get into in a little bit. So what does this end up meaning for us? As we get, kind of get back to this passage here, it, it means the Lord demands worship from his own. If he is the Lord that we're talking about here, he demands worship from his own. Now Moses gives Pharaoh a specific reason for letting the Israelites go. In Exodus 5.1, when he says, "'Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, "'Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, "'Let my people go so that they may celebrate a festival to me in the wilderness.'" That phrase, "Let my people go," comes up constantly in this the dialogue between Moses and Pharaoh, and it happens across multiple discussions. How does this relate to worship? Well we'll see the context in um, Exodus three eighteen they will listen to my voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of Hebrews has met with us. Let us now go." a three days journey into the wilderness so that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. So back then, sacrifice was a part of worship. So when you thought of the idea of sacrifice to the Lord, there was worship going on. In the broader context, we see it in Exodus 24 when Moses is getting the Ten Commandments. And he says, I'm sorry, verse 25, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me. Now he's speaking of idols or false gods in this context. But the Lord wears jealousy like a badge of honor. He's the one who's going to free Israel. He's the one who deserves their and our worship. So how does this help us? What does this do for us when we are in the middle of a struggle and we were if we're already dealing a struggle now God wants to throw more demands on us Well, there's many ways that this idea can play out but here's the fact it gives us when we worship in even in those times it gives us a change in perspective when we worship the Lord who freed others from oppression it reminds us that we're not alone that people who struggle aren't alone whatever our struggle might be so what about the Pharaohs that are in our lives Maybe it's a person that's keeping you down. Maybe it's an addiction that is keeping you held back. I know that many, if they're honest like me, can't relate to the experience of physical slavery. Now, I know that there are some that can and that have that as part of their history and part of their story. But addiction is a slavery that doesn't know race or creed or gender or any of that. And these are truths that speak into that as well. He says, know that the Lord will deal with the Pharaohs of the world. We see it in Exodus 6 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. Indeed, by a mighty hand he will let them go, by a mighty hand he will drive them out of his land. He's, it's almost like he's saying, I won't magically free the people from Pharaoh's slavery. Although he does do, God does do acts like that later on in the book of Acts where he sort of sends an angel to free people out of prison. I'm just going to drive Pharaoh mad so that he does it all on his own. See, the Egyptians considered Pharaoh a god in his own right. God, small g here. But the Lord, through Moses, gave Pharaoh an order. Let my people go. And Pharaoh says, nope. And in fact, he takes it a step further. He almost baits God even more and says, I'm going to make life harder for the slaves. Before, they were making bricks and things like that, and before, Pharaoh would give the slaves the straw in order to make bricks. Now he's going to say, you know what, I'm not even going to give them the straw. They're going to have to go get their own straw and then still make just as many bricks. It sounds like sin, disobeying something that God tells Pharaoh to do, and the Lord deals mightily with it. As he says twice in that verse. Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Indeed, by a mighty hand, he will let them go. By a mighty hand, he will drive them out of his land. Take note, as much as we may want to rah-rah this moment, that God's going to get behind the underdog and, and beat down the oppressor, consider it a warning against being a Pharaoh ourselves. If we're perpetuating division through oppression or through inequality or, God forbid, racism or stuff like that god's saying watch what i do to people who act like that we may not know what another person's struggle feels like or again maybe we do it doesn't mean we get to ignore it for the sake of wallowing in our own struggle i'm hoping you remember the first point that i mentioned just a few minutes ago that worship gives us a new perspective a new point of view from which to uh look at or view the struggle that we're going through Giving another person a helping hand or a listening ear does likewise for us. I like what one person said, in all honesty, during the um, race riots that were going on over this past summer. They said, I understand that I will never understand, and yet I stand. And yet all around, from every angle of this text, we see that this Lord who is Lord, who is calls people to worship, who deals with the pharaohs of the world, is a Lord who acts. I counted 16 times that the Lord takes action for his people in only eight verses. Now, we're not called to worship a Lord who stays aloof or stays separate. We're not called to fear a Lord who just spews hot air, you know, talks smack at his opponent and doesn't do anything. We're called to worship and fear a Lord who acts who gets into the fray and stands in the gap for us. The same way that he did for the Israelites who were struggling in slavery at this time, even if that be be thousands of years ago. Wherever our struggle might be, if it's addiction, he's there and working. If it's oppression, he's there and working. If it's pain, if it's loneliness, if it's fear, he is there and working. The psalmist says in Psalm 121, reminds us, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. I know this, and I can say this, because he sent his son Jesus. Again, specific, not nebulous, not some ethereal idea of what God is or who God is or how God works. Jesus, historical person, born, lived, crucified at a specific time and place in human history. So that our worship and trust in him would not be in vain. So this week, I want to heighten your awareness of those ways that an active Lord is working in the world and in your life. So I want to make this a part of your prayer whenever you sit down to eat. Just so that we can attach it to something that you do on a fairly regular basis. Add this to your prayer before you eat. Lord, show me that you are working. Now, I get that that may be a leap of faith for some people. That maybe you think, pray before I eat. What in the world are you talking about? So if you have to add this in, Lord, if you're real and there, show me how you are at work. If that's where you're at, an active Lord will meet you there. And you know what happens when we ask the Lord this? He answers. In this week alone, I have gotten to hear so many stories from friends about how the Lord has shown up, brought people's day from, literally, from despair to celebration in a half an hour. I told one friend as he was telling me a story and finally started to have some of that energy back and and excitement about life back that I had always kind of imagined with him and, and related with him. We're like, you know what? You cannot make this stuff up. May your week be filled with positive, can't make this stuff up moments, all because of his goodness and his lordship. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for being active in our lives, for meeting us in those places that we are, whether it's in struggle, in despair, in celebration. You are there and you are working. And you are calling us to come closer and closer in relationship to you. So help us to do that and help us to be aware of what you are doing and not take those moments for granted. All this we pray in the name of your son who you sent to bridge that gap for us. Amen.